Welcome to Tuesdays with Merton. My name is Teresa Sandock. I'm a Servite sister and a member of the Tuesdays with Merton Planning Committee, along with Daniel Horan and Sophronia Scott, with the assistance of Alan Kolb. Tuesdays with Merton is co-sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Center for the Study of Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Please note that we are recording this webinar. It will be available on YouTube and as a podcast soon after the live event. You may post questions in the chat at any time during today's presentation. Please direct your questions to Ellen Kolb. I would now like to invite Sophronia Scott to offer an opening prayer. Thank you, Teresa. I'm going to offer two brief paragraphs from Thomas Merton's New Seeds of Contemplation. The more we are alone, the more we are together, and the more we are in society, the true society of charity, not of cities and crowds, the more we are alone with him. For in my soul and in your soul, I find the same Christ who is our life, and he finds himself in our love, and together we all find paradise, which is the sharing of his love for his father in the person of their spirit. Let us live in this love and this happiness, you and I and all of us in the love of Christ and in contemplation. For this is where we find ourselves and one another as we truly are. It is only in this love that we at last become real. For it is here that we most truly share the life of one God in three persons. Thank you. Thank you, Sophronia. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Cassidy Hall. Cassidy is an author, award-winning filmmaker, podcaster, and leading voice in contemplative spirituality. She is the co-host of the Encountering Silence podcast and the creator of the Contemplating Now and Queering Contemplation podcasts. Her films include In Pursuit of Silence and Day of a Stranger. The latter is an intimate portrait of Thomas Merton, which I had the pleasure of viewing at the ITMS general meeting at St. Mary's College last June. Cassidy currently resides in Indianapolis, where she is studying for her Doctor of Ministry degree. Cassidy has pre-recorded her presentation, and she will join us live for the Q&A session. Here now is Cassidy Hall speaking on Queering Thomas Merton. Hello, and thank you so much to the Tuesdays with Merton team for inviting me to join you today. And I'm just thrilled to have this conversation with you and to dive into what it means to queer something, what queer theory is, what queer theology is, and what it has to do with Thomas Merton. So as we move through this conversation together, I wanna begin by talking about my journey into the work of Thomas Merton how I first started reading him, what I was reading, and why it mattered in the context of my life. So I'll begin by saying that in 
2011-2012, I started reading New Seeds of Contemplation. And I was reading this book in between clients as I was working as a substance abuse counselor in Iowa. And my life at the time was in a particular situation where I was getting progressively burnt out at my job. I was navigating what it means to be a queer woman. I was exploring a lot about And as I was reading New Seeds of Contemplation, this book was just incredibly meaningful to me at that time. And first I wanna go back to the origin of New Seeds of Contemplation. So as many of us know, New Seeds of Contemplation was originally published as Seeds of Contemplation in 1949. So it wasn't until 1962 when the work was revised and expanded and also retitled, adding the new, New Seeds of Contemplation. So what I think is so interesting about this is looking very briefly at the context of Thomas Merton's life and the evolution of this book, the expansion of this book, the, the ways in which he felt it necessary to even create an expanded version. So. That being said, we can look at the ways in which, okay, published in 1962, well, that was after his Fourth and Walnuts epiphany, which was 1958. And after he really started talking explicitly about being anti-war, being anti-bomb, and the many ways in which he was encouraging folks to rethink what war is in the context of religion and the context of spirituality, including this is also this is also republished after his famous essay, The Root of War is Fear, which was in the Catholic Worker in 1961, and after beginning communication with Father Dan Berrigan. And this is at the precipice of censorship from the Abbey, which came in 1962 as well. So that's when peace in the post-Christian era was denied publication. And Merton himself said that the expansion and the new edition of the book was not simply to make a larger book out of a small one, but to say many new things that could profitably be added to the old. And so again, I just love, you know, we talk a lot about all the things Merton has spoken to all the topics and all the issues. But I think there's something really beautiful about also pointing to the ways in which his evolution of thought occurred in those things, his expansion of self, his infinite becoming, his own unfolding. We saw all his own, we saw a lot of his unfolding on the pages, right? And I uh, highly recommend this piece that is in a Merton annual, I believe, called Merton's Journey from Seeds to New Seeds by Ruth Fox. And that covers in great detailed specificity of the difference between seeds and new seeds. So I'm in my office at this seemingly dead end job. I'm, my anxiety is increasing. 
I have my first panic attack. I'm navigating who I am and what I am to speak to and why am I here? And I come across the essay, Integrity, which we find in New Seeds of Contemplation. And this particular portion just struck me like a bell calling me to prayer in the core of my being. And in that essay, he writes, many poets are not poets for the same reason that many religious people are not saints. They never succeed in being themselves. They never become the person or the artist who is called for by all the circumstances of their individual lives. They waste their years in vain efforts to be some other poet, some other saint. They wear out their minds and bodies in a hopeless endeavor to have somebody else's experiences or write somebody else's poems. So this was my introduction to the concept of the true self. And also, as we know in New Seeds, there's a lot of, a lot of work surrounding the concept of the true self, what that is, what that means. And this led me to thinking, okay, this means something. And I want to go see the place from where this was written. Where did these words come from? Why are they so powerful to me? What's the meaning here? And with no plans and no expectations, really, I traveled to Gethsemane Abbey for a long weekend and completely fell in love with the space. Fell in love with the solitude, the spaciousness, the silence. Fell in love with the ways in which I could get in touch with who I was in that silence and solitude. And I could get in touch with making sense of some of the concepts like this that, that Merton was writing about. So to make a long story somewhat short, I came back from that long weekend back into my job and I thought to myself, okay, that was amazing. Let me learn more about these Trappist monasteries. So I got on my computer, found out at the time there were 17 Trappist monasteries and started reaching out to different monasteries, asking about availability to come visit. And it worked out in such a way that I was able to then travel to all 17 Trappist monasteries um, the end of 2012 into 2013 from the Redwoods Monastery of California to Spencer in Massachusetts. I drove and, and met with monks and nuns and talked with them about silence and solitude and contemplative life. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I knew I needed to do it. I knew there was something to that essay on integrity that was something I was finding in my own life. So ultimately this led to working on the documentary film In Pursuit of Silence. And I lived in Los Angeles for that time. And then that led to me going to seminary here in Indianapolis for my Masters of Divinity and Masters of Theological Studies, where I'm now studying for my doctorate. And during that time, I also made a short documentary about Thomas Merton called Day of a Stranger. 
And that film is largely based on Thomas Merton's Hermitage years using audio that he recorded from inside the Hermitage space and the natural sounds there. And now, uh, coming out next year, I have a book called Queering Contemplation, Finding Queerness in the Roots and Future of Contemplative Spirituality. So here's where we're going to kind of pivot and get into what, what does queer have to do with it? Uh, well, I first wanna begin by going back to what we were talking about regarding the true self and the ways in which I began exploring the concept of the true self and my notions of my true self when I was reading Thomas Merton. And from that, there was also something stirring inside me that kept being curious and asking the questions of whose voices are missing in this. If I'm learning the true self concepts from presumably cisgender, straight, celibate white men, um, right? I, I also was reading, you know, Richard Rohr and Henry Nouwen at the time. And they also write on the concepts of the true self. And what can I learn from a cisgender, presumably straight white man about being a queer woman in America? Or what can others, what can others true selves learn from these men who have different social locations, different experiences, different intersections of being marginalized? And so as I started asking that question more and more, I started to begin to step into my own thoughts and my own ways of thinking about the true self, what it means to me, what it means for me, and kind of expanding these notions beyond particular boxes, right? Because also these men all come from the Roman Catholic Church, right? Which is a institution that doesn't allow women or queer folks to be ordained and continues to, you know, cultivate a hierarchy causing all kinds of abuse and pains and, um, and, and violence on people. And that is not to say that, you know, Protestant uh, views and, and perspectives don't also perpetuate this. Obviously, this is a significant issue in many realms, many layers. The point is, when we only yield to an idea cultivated from someone whose social location is entirely different from ours, how can we under, truly understand that idea for ourselves? So for me, as a queer woman, and of course, every queer experience is different. So, you know, for another queer cisgender white woman, it would be a different experience from my own. Okay, so what is queer theory and what is queer theology? So generally, I, the big point I wanna get across is that queer theory is something that encourages, encourages us to look at things differently, to look through new avenues. It uh, dismantles and takes down 
our traditional assumptions about things, specifically about gender, sexual identities, challenges, traditional academic approaches, and fights against social inequality. So related to that, and this information is from Indiana University, by the way, related to that. So when we queer something, queering is not always about imposing queerness on an area, but about utilizing these lenses of queer theory to imagine new, previously unidentified possibilities. So in this way, we can think about queering something as a way to see differently, a way to look differently, a way to be prophetic about possibilities. Queer theology, on the other hand, is theology done by LGBTQIA plus folks and their allies. And it's about seeing ourselves in those stories and recognizing ourselves in those stories. So when we bounce back and forth here between queer and Thomas Merton, so what, is, what does queer have to do with Thomas Merton? Well, when we understand queer as a word of resistance to the normative and the status quo, and when we understand queer as an invitation into being non-dualistic, to host infinite spaciousness, to host an endless possibilities, we might be able to see the ways that queer lives in different aspects of our uniqueness or different parts of our weirdness or our aliveness or our ever becoming. And the Reverend Dr. Pamela Lightsey explores queer theory as a theory of deconstructing sexuality, normativity, and binaries. So again, like I said, every queer experience is different. So when I'm coming at this conversation, I want to be very clear that I am only speaking from my queer experience. I am only speaking from my contemplative experience. I am only speaking from my perspective of the work of Thomas Merton. And what I mean when I say queer, well, queer is not just related to my sexuality, but queer is the way I tilt my head to look at the world. And when I think about queering something, I think about being invited to see and look at things differently. And having that openness, that open stance, um, as, as James Finley calls the um, inner stance of the least resistance, right, to the gift of possibilities. And I see queer as an invitation into these things, into curiosity, life beyond the status quo. And queer is outside of boxes and categories, an invitation into limitless expanse and boundless curiosity. So when we queer the ways we look at contemplation, or when we look at Thomas Merton, or even seeing their innate queerness, right? Contemplative life is innately strange and odd and it encourages us to tilt our heads to look at the world to see things differently to deepen our roots of compassion and love contemplation invites us into queerly living so in this way i think queering something also invites us into recognizing the widening view of incarnation in our lives and the ways in which the image of God is among us, within us, and all around us. One of my favorite 
quotes about the word queer comes from a book called The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. And in that book, she quotes the Black poet Brandon Wentz. And he says, not queer like gay, queer like escaping definition, queer like some sort of fluidity and limitlessness all at once, queer like a freedom too strange to be conquered, queer like the fearlessness to imagine what love can look like and pursue it. Another quote that I really enjoy comes again from the Reverend Dr. Pamela Lightsey, who says that to say that I'm queer is not only my self-identity, it is also my active engagement against heteronormativity. When we're talking about things like heteronormativity or you know, the status quo, these kinds of things, we're talking about things that are imposed in our lives as expectations, right? To be actively against the script that we're handed in our lives that might not be for us. And so I think that's really important to kind of recognize that, you know, the boxes that we are put in are not the boxes that we necessarily belong in. And I mean, in my personal opinion, there should be no boxes. We shouldn't be, we should be out of boxes and out of categories and the ways in which we box ourselves in and box each other in minimizes our ability to continually be who we are, continually navigate our true self, continually unfold and explore and recognize ourselves in the newness of our perpetual becoming. So taking these concepts and thoughts, let's talk about Thomas Merton. And I want to talk about the ways in which I see Thomas Merton's queerness. So I see Thomas Merton as a monk who is beyond boxes and categories and open to the possibilities within the true self. And as he says in New Seeds of Contemplation, he talks about the ways in which sanctity consists of being himself and sanctity consists of others being themselves. And he says, for me to be a saint means to be myself. And what I love about this is that some of these broad strokes that Merton does with the true self is very inviting, very curious, very open-ended and very welcoming to the possibilities of our true selves, of discovering the fullness, the expanse of the true self. So Thomas Merton as embodied, as erotic, as in touch with his own sexuality, right? We see the writings for M, we see the, the poetry for M on a cold gray morning where he writes, we are nearer than we know. Love has another place of its own nearer to you than hill or city, nearer than your own mirror. You wake in another room, and the bed where you slept is a nest in my heart. And then in the essay, Day of a Stranger, I love the way he writes about this love of silence. He talks about, um, 
He says, perhaps I have an obligation to preserve the stillness, the silence, the poverty and virginal point of pure nothingness, which is at the center of all other loves. And he also says, one might say I had decided to marry the silence of the forest. The sweet, dark warmth of the whole world will have to be my wife. We see Thomas Merton as a person of paradoxical truth, someone who is holding something beyond binaries, beyond structure, and beyond expectation, right? He says things like art enables us to find ourselves and lose ourselves at the same time. He says that contemplation is beyond explanation, beyond discourse, beyond dialogue, beyond our own self. And in general, in the ways that he shows up as a monk beyond boxes and categories, this is the man who made up his own rules in many ways and you know, found out a way to make a tool shed his first hermitage, right? Where he names St. Anne's tool shed his first hermitage space. And he corresponds with folks across religions, ideas, genders, sexualities, and you know, what's world affairs. This is the man who did a jazz meditation in a hermitage during the Louisville riots while listening to Jimmy Smith. So what if we took all these things, right? What if we looked at Merton and his work as invitational, as expansive, as a model of possibility beyond the boxes and categories that we've put him into? What if we freed ourselves in the ways we look at Thomas Merton by releasing him from the bounds of Catholicism, from the expectations of being a monk or monastic life, or even contemplative life? And what if we queered the way we read his work and considered his voice as one who points us to other voices, other wisdom traditions, other social locations, and even our own voice and experience? What if we allowed and honored the image of God to speak beyond the status quo about the many topics that Thomas Merton speaks to? In the film I did, Dave a Stranger, there's a couple quotes that folks always really come back to. And one of those quotes is about mysticism. And Thomas Merton discusses the mysticism of isness. And he says that the most crucial thing, at least for me, is the necessity to dig into what one is. A mysticism of isness, a mysticism of existence, a mysticism of accepting what is right here and now, right in front of your nose. And again, these these broad strokes of true self are very invitational, are very open-ended, are very possible to the expanse of who you are, who I am. And I see so much of his, his work, in particular on the true self, as invitational work for all of us. In the film, he also says, I know in my heart that I do not need to be defined. I do not need to define myself. And yet I have this allergy of definition.
and Merton has shown us in his journals and other writings and in this audio from the film, the ways in which he is still exploring himself. He was still allowing room and spaciousness for his own unfolding. He was still allowing himself to be outside of categories and boxes and expectations. And this quote is always very striking to me. And it's, again, it's invitational. You know, what is, what is our allergy of definition? What are the parts or the pieces of ourselves that we hang on to where there's no room for expanse, growth, or evolution? And in that way, what parts of myself, what parts of yourself, what parts of ourselves are calling to be queered? And what thoughts about Merton or contemplative life are longing to be queered? So as we kind of come to the end of our presentation portion, um, I wanna come back to one final quote from Pamela Leitze, who wrote, a book called Our Lives Matter, A Womanist Queer Theology, which is an excellent, excellent book. And she talks about the reclamation of the word queer, because for many of us, that's a difficult thing to even consider. For some of us, it was, it's only been a derogatory term in our lives. And so the understanding of reclaiming it is hard to fathom. And not only that, but the understanding of reclaiming it alongside queering it, right? Even queering the word queer as we're doing in this conversation might seem kind of radical. And she talks about the ambiguity of queerness. She says queer is ambiguous, not simply because it is being reclaimed in new ways, but because it suggests that while sexuality is real, it should not be constructed as necessarily taking one permanent form. So to identify as queer is to assert a type of fluidity in life, particularly sexuality. And I see the many ways in which Thomas Merton modeled this fluidity. I see the many ways in which contemplative life reveals to us this fluidity. I believe that to be agile in life, to be open in life, to be freely holding things, with our hands open, with our hearts open, is a queer way to live. It is a stance of possibility. It is a stance of openness and curiosity. So if any of this interests you and um, you wanna talk more about it, I, first of all, I'm excited for our Q&A portion, but I also want to say that I am happy to discuss this with anyone. Um, and I am currently doing a podcast called Queering Contemplation, which is hosted by the Christian Century. And you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. And I am interviewing scholars and um, queer clergy and folks who are just reimagining what queerness is in the context of contemplation and the context of contemplative life. And 
then um, my book, Queer in Contemplation, Finding Queerness in the Roots and Future of Contemplative Spirituality, will be out in May of 2024. And you can scan that QR code to find a pre-order link. Um, that will also take you to my website, CassidyHall.com. And it will also take you to the podcast website. So finally, as we begin in some of Thomas Merton's early writings, I also want to end with some of Thomas Merton's early writings. And that is what he shares in the Latin at the end of the seven story mountain. And that is, this may be the end of the book, but not the end of the searching. And it is my hope that this is the end of the presentation, but may it not be the end of my searching, of your searching, of our searching for our true selves, for our own unfolding, and for our continual becoming. Thank you. Wow, Cassidy, that was pretty amazing. Um, you leave me breathless, so. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, th th yeah, thank you for two or three things that I want to enumerate, and then I want to jump into uh, some questions and conversation with you. One, just thanks for helping us um, understand and become functional with the word queer. Mm -hmm. um, I can imagine many of us on the call simply don't use that word um, for whatever reason, but I think uh, your ability to use it to be really clear helps us both to understand it and become functional in our own way. So I really appreciate that. Also, thanks for personalizing your own journey around the word. It gives us a sense of of how you're doing it. And there's nothing probably better than uh, hearing a story. And then this one is an embodied story, which is appropriate. That really shows us how, how to do it. Um, reminds me, I just recently finished up a, a series on the incarnation and, and Kathleen Norris has a wonderful uh, line about, um, well, the incarnation is is better off shown than told about. That mm -hmm. way you get, uh, you get the real sense of its power and she imagines, wouldn't it have been interesting had uh, Mary decided to write a treatise or issue an essay on the incarnation? Yeah, no, it was more interesting that she just had a baby. <laughs> so show, don't tell. And and third, um, I don't know whether to thank you or, or, or not on this one, but uh, thanks for the challenge of the presentation. Um, it was not only about you and queer, but you wound up actually challenging me and I imagine feeling like uh, challenging others. So I, I appreciate that. Um, to jump into question and conversation, I want to I want to use one by Monica Weiss to start with, um, you know, a friend of, of both of us. She says the early use of queer was seen as a pejorative term for members of the gay community. You've chosen to explode that meaning and broaden it to the kind of awareness awareness that Merton and several other mystics advocate. You want to comment on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I addressed that a little bit in the presentation with regards to the word being reclaimed, right? Um, and referencing the scholarship of Pamela Lightsey and the ways in which, you know, the word being reclaimed is, is not only taking back power, but uh, also a way to um, 
yeah, step, step more deeply into, into oneself. And I think, right. We don't see that happen with, with every pejorative or negative word that's used against people. So I think it's particular words, right? Like queer, queer being reclaimed is a, is a particular choice. There are other pejorative words about queer folks, about LGBTQIA plus folks that are not being reclaimed, right? And, and perhaps that's for a reason, but I think queer has a unique, um, I also like that, what did she say about mystics in there? Something about um, you've chosen to explode that meaning and broaden it with a kind of uh, awareness, awareness that Merton and several other mystics advocate. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, spe speaking of queerness, I think there's a lot of queerness in mysticism. So I appreciate that she said that because I think that um, mystical expression, mystical encounter, mystical experience is another invitation into the weirdness, the oddity, the strangeness, the ways we see life differently, right? The mystics fall in love with trees. So that's, I, I won't go that angle, but um, ultimately queer uh, being reclaimed is a way to step into our power, step into the power of, and, and control of one's narrative. One of the things I was, I was aware of, and, and I wanna ask you about it, it is as I was listening to you talk, we get queer, we get queerness, which are nouns, but queering or to queer, you were using it as a verb. Mm -hmm. I usually tell st students, well, verbs are the action word, use verbs. They're, they're the other words with real power. You get your nouns after verbs. Um, and so it really struck me that, that um, queering and to queer something as a verb is a, is a real action word. And, and I was, and watching you, it is almost sounds like it's a way of of reflecting on life deeply or even a way to do theology if you were to throw God in it. Is that a fair statement? It's yeah, and I think I think for me it's especially um, you know, again, like I said in the in the presentation, every queer experience is different, just like every contemplative experience is different, just like um every human experience is different. And I think that the ways in which I'm using queering is very specific to my experience of what it means to be a contemplative, what it means to be a queer woman, because I see in particular the ways in which queerness has enlivened and awakened my contemplative life and vice versa, the ways contemplation has awakened myself as a queer woman. And in many ways, I see those things as very entwined, um, the ways in which you know, contemplative life hosts oddity, mystery, strangeness, curiosity. And similarly, the ways I live as, as a queer woman, right? I talk about how it's the way I tilt my head to look at the world. And I think similarly, contemplation invites us to tilt our heads to look at the world. Yeah, you may be already answering that question, but when you said for you, queering and queerness has, I'm going to say everything to do with contemplation, could you could you expand that a bit? Um, I think about the wonderful words of Merton in the beginning of New Seeds. You talked about that as your beginning. You know, the first three or four pages, he goes on and on about contemplation is is one of my favorite pieces from all of Merton. So how does how does queerness and being contemplative connect so deeply for Cassidy? 
Yeah, I think that's a great question. For me, it's it's the boundless nature of contemplative life. It is my experience of contemplation, both as a practice and way of being in the world, as an identity and as an encounter of boundlessness. Um, for instance, I was at uh, a Zen meditation practice on Monday night, and I, you know, sitting sitting flanked between two other silent souls next to me, the ways in which that, that container of silence holds everything and nothing, the ways in which everything is there and nothing's there, right? We're releasing our suffering, but yet we're also witnessing it. And I think that there's something about contemplative life for me that reminds me of the boundlessness in terms of depths. Ultimately, you know, contemplative life connects my roots more deeply to others, whether that be through experience, whether that be through suffering, whether that be through deepening understanding. But ultimately, you know, contemplative life shows us that there is no arrival. And queerness also does that because queerness tells us that we can continually become who we are. And contemplative life continues to say, and we can continue to be more connected to ourselves and more connected to each other. Yeah, you had a wonderful term at some point during the the half hour, queerly living. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I've, I've used the term, you know, living contemplative and living contemplatively often. Would those two be synonymous for you, queerly living and living contemplatively? That's a great question. I have not thought about that. Well, um, yeah, I think I think um, most of the time, yes. And and a lot of that for me goes back to, you know, my my primary centerpiece of how I define contemplation. It comes from uh, the spiritual directors of Color Network founder Therese Taylor Stenson, and she says that for contemplation to be whole, its wholeness relies on both inward solitude and reflection and an outward response to what we find to what we find ourselves present and awake to. And in that way, I would say, yes, they're interchangeable um, because queerness and contemplation represents both my inner and outer life. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Um, do you have to be a true self to be able to queerly live? Huh? No, I, I mean, I think, you know, speaking of, you know, paradoxical truths, which came up in the talk, I, you know, are we ever our true selves? You know, I mean, are we ever fully our true minute, selves? I get to ask the questions. You, you have to ask <laughs> Yeah. I mean, if we're, if we're always continually moving towards our true self, and if the contemplative life is never arriving, then I think that um, no, you 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 can be wherever you are to be, whoever you're moving towards. Yeah, maybe maybe Merton had it wrong. He should have had you as a teacher. I'm just thinking it should have been truing self instead of true self. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, it could work. It could work. Should we rewrite the book? Uh, he's done it once. I don't think I want to mess with it. I like it the way it is. Um, another question along these lines, given your definition of queerness, I wonder, huh, can I also queer life? And is in fact, everybody 
potentially a candidate in that definitional way? You know, that's my hope in the way I'm using the word queer is that it can be seen as a less scary word for folks and a less intimidating word, because I do think it is a word of invitation. I do think it is a word that hosts a lot of possibilities. Um, and, you know, back to me saying that, you know, this is one queer experience and one contemplative experience, whereas, you know, another LGBTQIA plus person might disagree with the way I'm using the word queer. And so I think it's really important to understand queer as one needs to understand it, but also host that that sensitivity towards everyone's personal experience. That was felicitously put. Thank you. You know, there's a there's a book called Outside the Lines about queerness and livening faith by the Reverend Mihi Kim Court. And that's she also uses the the word queer as an invitational word uh, related to uh, Christianity in particular and in the spiritual context. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd like to explore a bit now with you. I'm going to change change directions a bit. Um, sort of where God might be in all of this. Um, yeah. I'm interested in as you were talking. One of the questions I noted to myself as I roll along is, huh. How is queer related to prophecy and prophets? So I'm I'm interested in whether um well maybe your reaction first. Let's start with that. Is is do you see any relationship particularly to the prophets and the prophet prophecy? Related to queerness? Yes. Yeah. So you know, I was I was in a class today and we're talking about autoethnography and the ways in which our personal stories can, you know, enliven and awaken research methods and these kinds of things. That part's not particularly interesting. The interesting part is that when we tell our own stories, because we are the experts in our own stories, when we tell our own stories, we give each other the gift of widening incarnation. When we don't tell our stories, when we don't share our experiences, we also limit the vastness of the sight of God. And so in that way, I think it's, it's you know, it's of course, it's not just queerness that can be prophetic, but I think in that way, story, you know, our stories and expanding the image of God, you know, speaking more into that over and over and over, over again as we share our stories can can reveal God and in that way um, be a sense of, of prophecy. But with regards to, um, you know, we were talking earlier about the prophetic nature of speaking and seeing beyond what is here. And so not just related to the image of God, but also being able to see and speak beyond the status quo, beyond heteronormativity, beyond patriarchy, beyond the things that keep us kind of in a cyclical, um, stagnant mode of way of being that don't actually expand our horizons to things like communal care or liberation and the ways in which we're all interconnected. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I'm going to invite my friend and your friend Sophronia in. She's going okay. to be uh, participating in these Q and A's and and uh, is is going to ask one now. I like to turn us into a trio if we can. Sophronia. Yeah, thank you, Alan. So uh, a few minutes ago, I think I heard you talk about a kind of dichotomy between a silent um, solitude presence versus being out and engaged in the world. And it seems to me, and, and if I'm hearing that right, do you think Merton would have lived that way had he had lived? you know, breaking these boundaries of, of what a monk's life was supposed to look like and, and living in these in the, these two different spaces? Yeah, um, I love that question. And and yes, I, I do. I do. And I think, right, he modeled that for us verbally and mentally on the page because essentially he was speaking to many things, but he wasn't physically present, like on the streets at a protest or something like this. But I do think that that was the momentum of, of his life. Um, I do think that would have eventually led that way because I think he, yeah, the ways in which he spoke to those things was unlike a lot of other monastic writing we see. And I think that he was particularly attuned and, and curious about the, what full engagement meant for him. And I think that that's also what the, the Buddhist monks were sharing with him when he, when he was in Asia on that last trip, you know, encouraging yeah. to, to view um, his presence in the world more broadly. Yeah, yeah. And that restlessness, right? That restlessness we see in him that just follows him everywhere and will not let him go. Was the early Thomas Merton the kind of guy you would have picked up as as up for this querying living? Or did he, you know, somehow get there so that you would say, ah, now he's now he's doing it in a way that I resonate with, I mean, certainly by the new seeds of contemplation. You mentioned the first version of that one, Seeds of Contemplation, but you know, when I think about Seven Story Mountain, I'm I don't know whether I think about the, you know, the querying of Thomas Merton yet, but I'd rather hear you talk about it. Was there an early Merton that didn't quite qualify yet? So I would what what I would look at for like, let's say, you know, the the younger queering of Thomas Merton, I would look at his poetry. Um, I think the ways in which he was playing with words, the ways in which he was looking at things differently his whole life, um, and the ways in which he engaged. You know, I also I also think about his letters with Robert Lax. And I think about how goofy and strange those letters were and how beautifully playful and curious and, you know, odd. They, they looked at things differently. They were creatives together. They, you know, and I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, Merton, Merton's sexuality and I'm not making any speculations about that. What I'm saying is that he always hosted an oddity about him, a strangeness about him, a uniqueness about him that I, I could, that would be a fun, that'd be a fun project to do is queering Merton throughout the years and kind of pointing to some of those ways in which he showed up like that. Yeah, well, do it. I'd read it. Okay, <laughs> do it. 
steal. Uh, here, here's here's a question that's that uh, comes from Hugh Turley. It's it's a it's a fun, playful question as I read it. Do you think Merton could be the patron saint of queer? And why do you think the monks at Gethsemane do not support his canonization? <laughs> that's a great question. Um, I, I mean, I I think that's that's a very fun question, and I think that probably a person who identifies and que as queer on all levels would be more appropriate for that role, perhaps in terms of them identifying as queer in terms of their sexuality as well as. Um, the ways in which they they live their life. Probably not a white guy who's Catholic, as I heard you. <laughs> Maybe not, but you know. <laughs> yeah. And another another question or comment from Patricia Conley: In the old days, before queer was used in sexuality terms, it was used as meaning odd, as in he's a queer one or an odd one or different. Do you have a sense of when it moved from that, which probably many of us who are old enough think, yeah, that's kind of the way it was used, to the way it's being used now in a in a in a sense more engaged, creative way? I don't. And as an Enneagram five, I will not speak to that if I do not know any facts about it. But I will say that. I appreciate you saying that because I would, I do need to research that because I am also engaging the word in that way because I am claiming my weirdness and my oddity and the ways I show up in the world as strange. And I think it's beautiful and wonderful. And I think we all should embrace those parts of ourselves. So I appreciate that because it's making me recognize the ways in which the word is being reclaimed in, in a multitude of ways. Yeah. And here's a, here's a good one from our friend, Chris Pramuk. Can you share a bit about your doctoral studies? You've gone from counseling to ordination to filmmaking to diving even deeper into theological studies. Really an amazing journey. Why the doctorate and what might be next on your horizon? Yeah, so thank you for that. Um, one of the things I really enjoyed while working on my Master's of Divinity was teaching. And I got to teach um, in several classes that was just a really engaging way for, for me to meet with students and, and, and work with professors. And so that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm doing that. That being said, I'm also utilizing this, this work um, in the realm of queering contemplative life and finding my own voice as a queer contemplative and continuing to pursue that for, for the program, for the studies. So um one of the things I'm working on is is hopefully working on teaching a class um, during during this the time of study as well. So hopefully that will happen. But anything else you'd like to ask, Sophronia? Cassidy, I'd like to hear more about the book that you're coming. In. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the book is called Queer and Contemplation, Finding Queerness in the Roots and Future of Contemplative Spirituality. And it's kind of a combination of uh, personal stories, research, um, the ways in which, you know, a lot of things I'm speaking to today about how contemplative life has awakened my queerness, queerness has awakened my contemplative life. Um, and I talk about things like um, queering silence, Queer the deserts of our lives, the desert, the desert experiences, 
the ways in which queerness can be an advocate and a tool in those barren moments to help us see a way out, to help us, you know, tilt our heads in order to understand where um, we might be able to, to find water for our parched places. And queering mysticism and talking about the ways I see mysticism as innately queer, again, mystics fall with trees, the embodied writings, so many mystics. I'm thinking of um, Miguel H. Diaz's book, Queer God Day of More, which is a book that talks about the queerness of the writings of St. John of the Cross. It's a really excellent book. Highly recommend that. And yeah, I talk about queering the liminal space and I talk about the closet experience as a liminal space and the ways in which some folks need to stay in the for safe or their own protection and the ways we can engage that space and out or, you know, behind or ahead of that um, closet experience. And yeah, just a variety of of ways to look at particular aspects of contemplative life, either queer and also intentional into the ways that we can queer these and in them and in life. And what do you hope readers will take away from the book? Yeah, you know, my on the dedication page, I was I was stuck there for a little bit because I thought about that question. And I ended up the book is now it ended up being dedicated to the queerness in each of us. And so my hope is that the book would allow people to engage with the world here and their own experience of personal contemplative life differently. And it's my hope that it gives us kind of permission to awaken different parts of ourselves and recognize the ways in which contemplative life can can deepen our roots, can allow us to continue continually become and step into more of who we are. Let me ask you one last question, Sophronia, and then we'll, or uh, Cassidy, Sophronia can listen in, and then we'll throw it back to, to Teresa. Only um, if it's a hard one. No, I'm going to make it a, this is, a, this is the easy one you wanted me to ask you all. Oh, oh good. Um, <laughs> I, I really, I'm really interested in, in how you and the International Thomas Merton Society could, could continue to partner in an important work like this. Um, I'm, I'm reflecting back, you were a Daggy scholar when you were younger, you've been involved in ITMS. Um, part of the reason we're doing these Tuesdays with Merton is to try to find um, new voices that aren't always quite as public. Uh, you're, you're a pretty public voice. Um, but um, you're clearly not an old guy like me. So what do you see ahead for ITMS, the Merton Society, and and how could it help you? And, and what challenge do you offer us as we move forward into this 21st century? How can we queer this century? <laughs> there you go. I love it. Um, you know, I, when I first came to my first ITMS conference was in 2015 at Bellarmine and our president, Chris Premick, who I, uh, always call out on this every time I see him gave an incredible talk. And I wish I could remember the title, Chris, but I think it's something about God accompanying persons. And in that talk, uh, I'm sure Paul will toss it in the in the chat right away because Paul's always on that. Um, in that talk, 
Chris really invited and evoked a conversation, I think, that started then between the society. And that talk was about LGBTQIA people in particular. And it was really, really powerful and really, really meaningful to be in a room of scholars and, you know, just willing to learn and eager to curious. And I think the ITMS as a whole, the society as a whole, models that curiosity in so many beautiful ways, right? You don't have to be a scholar to, to be a part of the society. In fact, you can, you can present a creative project and we will call you a scholar because you are, because you are your intuitive knowledge. You are using your inner embodied wisdom. And I think what's so beautiful about the society is that in many ways it is pretty queer and beautifully it is so focused on the importance of relationship and friendship and care and getting to know each other so that we do widen the, our view of incarnation. And I think that I, I have a lot of hope for the society that it's something I, I could not imagine not part of. Um, it's been an incredible support. And I, particularly there is no other conference or group I'm a part of that truly honors the vastness of, of, of what scholarship is. And, you know, from our embodied knowledge to poetry, presentations, film, music, dance, art. And I think that that's really, really honoring of what it means to, to see each other, what it means to friendships and what it means to uh, queer Thomas Merton. Great. And I'm happy to have more conversations like this, Alan. Cheers. And I will point time out, in Indy. I will point out that Paul did put the, the title of the talk in the chat. I knew he would. <laughs> Paul's the best. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. It's all yours, Teresa. All right. Well, thank you, Cassidy. I was just enthralled by the title and I had no idea where you go, we were going to go with it. You touched me very deeply and I could tell from the comments and the questions that you touched a lot of us and expanded our horizons, queered our horizons, I guess I could say. I want to thank Julia Fetter. You didn't see her today, but she's been behind the scenes like the ghost in the machine. She's from the Center for Spirituality, uh, for the Study of Spirituality at St. Mary's, and she provided the technical support for today's presentation. Alan Culp always does such a beautiful job moderating the questions, and today was accompanied by Sophronia Scott, and, uh, you know, they make a great duo when it comes to the questioning. So thank you both so much. Um, Bob Grip is the person who posts the webinars on YouTube. He's so good at that, and he's so good at getting it out very quickly. So you can tell your friends it'll be there probably tomorrow. Uh, Mark Mead does the same by making these um, presentations available as podcasts. You can find links to the recordings of previous webinars at merton.org slash ITMS. And now I am so very excited to announce the very first annual Fourth and Walnut Lecture featuring Ilya Delio. She's going to speak on Merton's Christophany and the Second Axial Monk. 
Ilya is a Franciscan sister of Washington, D.C., and an award-winning theological uh, theologian, excuse me, specializing in the area of science and religion. The event will take place on Tuesday, November 14th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the campus of St. Mary's College and will also be live streamed. Please note that this event will start an hour earlier than usual. For more information about this wonderful opportunity, go to the website of the Center for the Study of Spirituality at St. Mary's College or the website of the International Thomas Merton Society. Thank you for joining us today and thanks for continuing to spread the good word about Tuesdays with Merton. So now goodbye, stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you next month in person or online.